<clears throat> a number of years ago, a slogan came out to promote a, a company, and I want to put that slogan up on the screen. It says, when you understand that you can change the world, your life will never be the same again. You know what? It's creative, a phrase that could be applied in a number of different ways. Matter of fact, you'd probably call it kind of a modern proverb, kind of a, a single driving home point, which is really true. But that phrase could apply to a church or a follower of Christ. When a church believes that it can change the world, life will never be the same. Or when a Christ follower believes that they can change the world because of Jesus in their life, nothing should be the same. Now, the company that used that phrase was none other than Playboy. Now, I suspect that the phrase was not unique to that company because they believed, you understand, they believed that they could change the world in a particular area and life would never be the same. And matter of fact, it's, there's an element of truth to that. You know, Playboy sold the mentality that brought really immorality out in the open. It normalized sex outside of marriage. It, it helped change the morals of the country. The entertainment industry, you know, the research when they study kind of the erosion of morals and they can point to those 50s and 60s as really a core time, but Playboy was coming on the scene and they were selling sex. And the consequences, they literally can have some statistics that there were consequences of the rise of that and the change in the culture. You think of teenage pregnancies, there was a rise in the 60s. In the 70s, an increase in sexual abuse of children. There's some connections there. And, and matter of fact, really the roots of pornography directed around kids. That was what was, the world changed. But here's the deal. A brilliant phrase, and they used that truth for evil rather than good. Um, if you're a guest here today... We are finishing, this is the last week in a series called All In, and we're glad you're here with us today. But it's the question, why church? Why do we come together and meet? Why do we get up on a day like today and come in and gather together and sing, and you listen and we connect uh, before and after the service? But with it, I, I think there needs to be a question as we end today. And let me put that question on the screen. Do you believe the church is important? In other words, maybe to phrase it this way. Do you believe that the church can change the world? Or has church been a habit, a tradition, a, a spiritual accessory? You know, a YMCA, is this the why for you on Sunday morning, that, that it's helping your spiritual Fitbit? Or, or is this just a, a training ground for your children to teach them some spiritual things? See, if the, if the church is important, then the question, so what? What then? What's next? Should life be different if we truly believe that the church is important. 
Let me just kind of, for review, give you kind of a synopsis of, of what we've covered so far in this series. I, I began by looking, are we all in with the great commandment to love God and love people as the foundation of our lives? Are we all in when it comes to this book? This reveals who God is, and we worship this God, and he communicates through this book to us. Are we all in when it comes to spiritual transformation, allowing the Spirit to transform our lives? Are we all in when it comes to relationships? We looked at John 17, this idea that relationships within a body of Christ can be so deep, so rich, so one, one with each other, that it tells the world that God has sent his son into the world just by being one together. Are we all in? When it comes to that calling to serve him, uh, even in front of your, your, uh, on the chair there, there's some opportunities for you to fill out and go, maybe you've never jumped in and you're not using your gifts and abilities to serve the body and serve the kingdom. There's a call in your life to do that. Last week, are you all in when it comes to discipleship? See, the reality is we looked at 1 John 2 and, and getting to that place where we're actually becoming fathers and mothers in our faith, where reproduction is taking place. Not just average Christians, but we're coming, becoming fathers and mothers where we're birthing other people and walking alongside of other people and helping them become fathers and mothers in the faith. But today... See, do we believe that this gathering, this place that we come to is important? And you got to realize something that what the scriptures tell us is that we have something to offer to this world that no other organization can offer. There's no other group out there that can offer what we can offer. Let me give you the main point of where we want to go this morning. Are we all in? as to become an instrument of hope in a broken world. Hope. See, when we fall more and more in love with Christ, and when we begin to take discipleship seriously, there is something profound that happens within a church that's powerful enough to change the world. And folks, I got to tell us, it's not going to go away as much as the church is hurting and struggling. Look what Jesus told his disciples again, Matthew 16, 18. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It's not going away. You know, churches are closing their doors in the United States. In other parts of the world, they're doing actually a lot better than we are. But we have to understand something. Satan will never put the church out of business. See, God is working. And he wants us to become a place where hope can be found for people. Now, here's where we want to go this morning. There's two components, two parts of that is becoming instruments in hope that I want to go after here. And they're not exclusive, understand that. But I believe this, is that we need to become a place where as people walk into these doors, they are finding hope. And what will it take 
for that to happen. So let me give you two things. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, a short passage, just a couple of verses. But let me just give you the context of these verses even. Uh, the Apostle Paul had left Timothy there to guide this church in a city called Ephesus. Now, you have to understand what kind of a city this really was. Uh, my daughter lives in Northern California. And the people in Northern California, uh, they don't necessarily always get along with the people in Southern California because the LA, the Los Angeles area, they have this attitude that says this, we are of the center of the universe. That was the city of Ephesus. They were the center of the world in their eyes. See, it was a large city in the Roman Empire. It had commerce, it had businesses, it had culture. And one of the more prominent things in that city was the Temple of Diana. A temple dedicated to the worship of sex. So in that city... There was lots of room for debauchery, lots of space for sexual immorality. But when this letter was written, the church had been around for a few years. But Timothy was sent here to help them out to keep this church on a, on a, a right path. Because they needed biblical teaching because there were some false teachers that were coming into the church trying to steer them in a wrong direction. So Timothy, as Paul writes to Timothy, he's giving lots of instructions on worship, on prayer. And then we come to verse 14 and 15 here in chapter 3. And there's some unique things that, it, that it's spoken that really apply to us as we understand this entity called the church. Verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, again, many people today do not believe that the church is very important, optional, as Ed was sharing here even this morning. Just not that important. Matter of fact, the media, I don't know if you realize the media portrays it, and I don't know if you know this, you're weak people. You, you, need, a, you need a crutch like the church, like religion. But, but catch this, that was not Paul's attitude. Even with all of the problems in, in many of the churches that he wrote with, Paul goes, the church is important. He loved the church. It was absolutely necessary for the world. See, but back to that question, do we believe the church is important in this world, in the Grand Rapids area, in the surrounding communities? Let's just dig a few minutes in. Look, I want to put up verse 15 first. Verse 15 you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, I need to explain that because oftentimes people misinterpret that passage. And he understand this. He's not talking about behavior as you walk into the building today. That's not what he's saying there. Matter of fact, some of your version would, rather than how one, would point to this. How you, pointing toward Timothy. What's, what's Paul doing there? He's saying, Timothy, 
Make sure you order and manage and lead well. It was a directive to him. That's what that's about. Now, my growing up years, as I was studying this, I, I had to think back to growing up and how there was a set of rules that actually they used this text. My parents did, my church did, is that when you walked into the building, there was a certain amount of rules that you had to live by. And it kind of went like this. If you walked into the, quote, sanctuary, many of you know that term, you had to be, have hushed tones. If you're a kid, you had to sit really still. And if you start wiggling, my parents would grab my leg and squeeze it. Any of you remember that? You needed to stay awake. And don't criticize the preacher out loud. Amen. But catch this. Paul did not understand the church as a building. See, we hold to this idea that the church is somehow a building. And some people believe that we can make a building holy. It's really not biblical. Now, you know, when Deanna and I were getting our feet wet in ministry out in Vancouver, the church there had a gym. And one of the things the youth pastor did, did was had a, he had a basketball league on Saturday mornings and he invited other churches to bring a team. And it was meant for guys. It was an outreach to guys to come together. And, and the, the stipulation was you couldn't play for a high school team to be on the, in, in, during that league. So I would go there and I would referee those games on Saturday mornings. And we'd have four or five teams, but one of the things that was popular back then for those guys was chewing tobacco. And occasionally, more than occasionally, as young guys would do, they would deposit that wad in the drinking fountain. So if we forgot to look in the drinking fountain before we left, People would come in on Sunday morning and they would see that, that wad of snooze there. And they, there's a few of them that were not happy. They were not happy. And matter of fact, they communicated once to the youth pastor, you should quit that. They're, they're wrecking the church. You understand what their belief was is that the building is somehow holy and that it really didn't matter for kids to come together to hear the gospel. And you have to realize something else. When you, even when you go through the scriptures like the book of Acts, it reveals almost nothing about buildings other than saying they gathered together. Now, one fact was, I, I thought of this. Remember the young man, he was listening to Paul's sermon, and he fell asleep. That's good news for me. Um, then he falls out of a window. Remember that? Falls down. <clears throat> Having said that, the church is not a building. Do I appreciate this space? Yes, I really do. It helps ministry. It helps relationships grow. I, I think of some of the guys that are even sitting down in front. They're playing volleyball here on Tuesday nights. Or if you come on Wednesday nights where you see the youth ministry able to use that effectively for some, some 
relational building that's taking place. So we give thanks for that. But recognize the building is not the church. They're secondary. The building is secondary. Look at verse 15 again. Here's where I want to push it farther. The household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, your version could say this. It just says house, not household, okay? But recognize that word house or household is not a physical structure. The household is the people. It is the gathered people who have been born again by the Spirit of God. And they've entered a new way of life together. And they are now a spiritual family, a new household. So he calls it the household of God. And again, it points again to the relational world that needs to exist within a church. The family gathered together to love each other. But I got to go on because of the second phrase that, are underli- under, that I underline. It's the church of the living God. That phrase is used 15 times in the New Testament. And it is deeply significant. Now what does it mean? The church of the living God. Well, a living God as opposed to a dead God. A dead God. Think farther. Where does life come from? Who, who gives us life? It's God. See, God equals life. And the fact that we even exist and breathe is because of God. He gives life. He is life. Matter of fact, God gives spiritual life to spiritually dead people. See, Paul understands this concept, but he's telling us that a living God is dwelling within the collective believers. God is within the believers and making them into a temple where it houses himself. We miss the significance of this. Let me show you Ephesians 2.22. In him, who's him? Christ. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As a church grows, we are being built into a dwelling place where God is here. See, it reminds us of God's power. He gives life. And understand this, because of that, we have hope. We have hope. Because God gives life. Let me show you Jeremiah 29. Many of you maybe memorized this passage. It's a great text to to understand and, and to know and apply. He's writing to Israel here, a group of people. Look what he says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Do you see what's happening here? God is here. Let me give you the first point for your notes to fill that in. We are the family of God with life-changing power. Why? Because God is in our midst. God is in this room. And we can forget that. And I can forget that. It was a great reminder for me even this week. As we gather together, we are the household of God, and God is in the midst of all of us. And it's his power that gives life. He's the one that gives hope. It's because he's here. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about community John 17, where it calls to be one like the Father and Son. You understand, again, what happens with that when a oneness comes within a body of Christ, Because God is here, it unleashes power to change people and to give hope. God unleashes power as people gather together. Matter of fact, just read the book of Acts sometimes. It puts a lens on you. You understand, they value joining together. Big groups, small groups. Whenever and wherever they could meet, they would meet. And when they met, they would sense the reality of the Holy Spirit, God being there. They, were, they recognized that they were the growing household of God. They'd, they'd understand what God had done, what had done in their midst. And what happened when they sensed that reality? It says this, and God added to their number daily. They grew. They grew See, we've been so trained that the building is a church. And folks know the people gathered are the church. And God is in us. The people gathered. And he's building a people house. And the physical building is secondary. Look at Hebrews 3.6. Another passage, but Christ as the son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. Do you know and remember that God is your intimate friend and that he dwells with you and with us collectively? And when you sing You are singing to God. He is the audience. You're not singing at the screen or at the group up front here. You're singing to God because God is here. See, when people recognize that God is here, we also can believe that people can be changed by just coming into the presence of a group of people. That's what was going on in Acts, in the church of Acts. God is here. We are the church of the living God. Now, I got to point out one thing. There was also a contrast here. 
When I go back to the introduction there of the Ephesus and what was going on here, you need to realize that the temple of Diana had a lifeless God. There was no life. I don't know if you know this, but what they believe, what history tells us is that there was a meteorite that fell out of the sky and this rock looked like a woman and they built a temple around it and called it the Temple of Diana. Superstition. And they began to worship it. A lifeless piece of rock was the glory of Ephesus. And it became an object of worship where people would travel to this temple to worship a rock as opposed to a live God. See, because God lives here, therefore we, the church, are to be an instrument for change. And we have the power to help people change. Why? Because God is in our midst. And God has committed himself to us, a gathered group of people called the Church of Jesus Christ. No matter how weak we are or strong we may be, you recognize something, God is never going to use another plan. The church is plan A, there is no plan B or C. Now, there are people, I understand, who claim Christ and they're trying to set the church aside because of the imperfections that are there and the answer is that it's true. But do you understand this? God will never allow it to die. He's committed to the church. So therefore, we must not ignore it either. He's going to work through it and only through it. On this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He guarantees it. And he says the church is the instrument that he's chosen to offer hope to this fallen world. But notice, i got to go after one last phrase here in that. A pillar of buttress and truth. And you go, what is that about? Well, understand something here. Is there is something unique about the church and truth. Maybe to describe it this way, we have the secret handshake. We really do. Why? Because God is here. The church is a fortress, a buttress for truth. See, it's been actually given the mission to proclaim that life works only when we align ourselves in terms of what God wants wants for our lives. See, people keep believing that they can find happiness and purpose and meaning in this world in how the world offers it. And they make the same mistake over and over and over again. History just repeats itself. You know, it's been interesting, fascinating for me. Socialism is making a comeback. And as I listen to it on the news of what's happening uh, in college, I, I had a course called The American Left in the 1930s. It was actually looking at how socialism was being taken from Europe and creeping into the United States a philosophy of education, all different kinds of things. And so we had to study socialism. But at the bottom line of socialism, they believe that people in government have the power to create a world of harmony and love and everybody will be satisfied. And hear this. They think they can do it without Christ and without God, without the church. 
See, they keep believing that this world will and can get, it can get better without God. And folks, that belief will fail. They're on a treadmill toward failure. And they end up wrestling with the same stuff over and over again. If we just do this, we're going to have this culture that's going to be peace. And a World War I, they were convinced that what? They were gonna, this was going to be the, the war that would end all wars. And a few years later, what do we get? World War II. And then we get the Korean War. The treadmill just keeps cycling on. See, they believe that they and themselves, mankind, can raise up this utopian. And I go, no, we have the answer. The church, through the scriptures, actually has the answer, the secret. And it's this, Christ crucified and being raised again. And he then becomes our living hope. The truth, ha- the truth, the church has it. The church has it. And we are called to share it. And to teach people who man really is fallen. To communicate what man's kind, how they're, how they're relating with God. We are called to express that. But even think of some of the cries of people of going, who am I? What's life about I need to find myself. Do you realize that we have the answers to those questions? That's what it means that the church is the pillar. The bulwark, it's the defense, it's the support of the very structure of what is true. And I think people think that we can recover it without the church. And you go, it's not true. Matter of fact, here's what we end up doing at times. We pray for revival in communities. And we bypass praying for the church. Because if revival, if it's going to start, it's going to start within the church getting serious about discipleship. Because any hope to stop the slide into further degeneration lies in the hands of the church why? Because we have the message that can actually break the slide. Why? Because God is here. And he is in our midst. And he is a living God. So what do we want? When people walk into this place, we want them to know for certain that God is alive and he's here and he's real and there is hope. It's about changing the lives of people. Let me show you a quote from C.S. Lewis. He writes this. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ and to make them little Christs. And there's hope there, folks. But here's where I gotta go. I gotta give you one more text before we leave today because there's one more issue connected to this. Because God is in our midst, he's also given us another directive. Got your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And again, the encouragement by using your Bible, you might want to highlight or underline or circle. But let me read the text here that we want to look at just for a couple of minutes. Five, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. and Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God, was rec- reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, and God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me give you the second point here for your notes so I don't miss it. We are to be instruments of hope. Why? Because God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. And that's where the source of hope comes from, guys. He's entrusted to us. Look at the phrase in verse 18 and 19. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Folks, as he's given it to us, he's saying it implies action. We don't just sit there in a corner with it. We have the secret handshake. We have where hope is found. You don't just sit and collect it and go, oh, thank you. Because he's been given that to us, he is expecting something of, from us. See, I, I don't know if we stop and really think about this. Recognize this. Our God is a missionary God. Do you know that? He started on a path to redeem and he gave his son because he's a missionary God. And, and I want to put a statement on the screen for you. The church is the primary tool that God uses to be a missionary God. It is the primary tool. See, God in his wisdom, his sovereignty, his love, he set out to redeem sinful mankind as they walked away and turned their back. He goes, I'm going to pursue them. And he decided in his heart to act in history. And if you know the scriptures at all, he sent Abraham and he chose Abraham out of that with a purpose. And Abraham ended up having a son, Isaac, and he used Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And he began to use those 12. And he sent them into Egypt. And then he sends Moses to deliver them. And then he gives them the law so that it would reveal himself to those people. And then through the centuries, he gave prophet after prophet to keep calling these people back to God and inviting them back to God. And then when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son into the world to die and to be raised again and to ascend to the father. And then through history, God sends the Holy Spirit into the world to begin to build the church, to become the bride of Christ. And God, through the Holy Spirit, began to birth church after church after church, and even in Ephesus, where they were worshiping sex. And what was our mission? What's our mission? To be ministers of reconciliation. 
See, God has entrusted to us the message through Jesus that Jesus is the hope of the world. Peter says he's the living hope. See, when people walk into a gathering like us here today, we want people to find God and the hope that they so desperately need and want. And when we walk out there, when we go to work tomorrow out there, what does he want for us? See, do we believe that we here can change the world? The gathering here, people walk in, they're changed. We go out there, we're messengers of reconciliation. People can be changed. And we plant a seed. Are some of them ready for the seed? No, you might they, you face rejection. The answer is yes. But some have already, the seed's already been planted. And you come along and you water it with the message of reconciliation. And maybe some of you might have the privilege of even seeing that seed blossom and grow and be born again. But we have the message. We have where hope is found. Students, as you go to school, do you believe that you have the message of reconciliation in your school? It applies to you as well. This isn't just adults, old, old people. Folks, we have this secret handshake. You know, there's a lot of controversy on, on hats these days and what's on hats. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we got some hats and just said, ministers of reconciliation on it and wore them. And people would come up to you and go, what? I don't know what color we'd put it, but... And all of a sudden we go, guess what? You need hope? I got a message for you. Or maybe we do that with t-shirts, whatever it is. But recognize that there are people who are so filled with hopelessness and we have been gifted, endowed with the message of reconciliation and ultimately they will find hope through Jesus. Let me give you one other thing you can do and just recognize this. Maybe one of the first steps. I hope you caught earlier is that this gathered group of people, God is here. And one of the things you functionally can do is this. Invite somebody who needs hope. It's not on you to change them. You understand, when we come together, that God literally can bring somebody in here and the Holy Spirit works just from the gathering of people. And he changes their heart and he gives them hope. That'd be a first step. The next one might be to make a hat and go to work. Tomorrow, as you walk through the week, put this deep within your mind and go, I have been given 
the message. I've been given the secret sauce, the secret handshake to the message of reconciliation that is the hope of the world, and that is Jesus Christ. Give them away. Love people well. Let's stand and pray.